With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast on the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host, George Smith, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined, as always, by our Chief United writer, Samuel Wilkhurst, and fellow United writer, Tyrone Marshall. How are we doing today, gents? Not bad, thank you, George. Not bad at all. Nice to have you back on. Yeah, as well as can be expected, George, after the after the weekend's events. Yeah, weekend's events, and that's probably the only place well, the only place we can possibly start, isn't it? Even though you're probably sick of hearing about it, but obviously United fall into a rather embarrassing four 0 defeat at the GTEC Community Stadium to Brentford on Saturday evening. Eric Ten Hag, despite only making the one change, it seemed like the right one with Ericsson back into midfield with Ronaldo coming back into the team, but it had anything but the desired effect it was meant to. Obviously, Samuel Ty, you were both there. I was covering the game from home. It was just a complete nightmare from start to finish, wasn't it, Samuel? It was a, it was a complete car crash of an afternoon. It, it doesn't feel like the, the statement carries much weight when you say that's the worst I've seen United in my lifetime because I must have said that four or five times last season. Uh, it, it almost got progressively worse. We, we were going through the amount of times they've conceded uh, at least four goals in, in league games over the last year, and it's now seven. It's it's almost like become its own horror film with 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 myself and Ty in, in the role of, of of Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt surveying these uh, these gruesome crime scenes, albeit not nowhere near as watchable and and not with quite with the same gravitas as as, as Brad Pitt or, or Morgan Freeman. And I think apart from maybe the I mean the Leicester one was bad, and it's almost got because they, they lost 4-1 to Manchester City, which is almost permissible by modern United standards, it has got progressively worse. I, I, I thought at the start of the season, United could not be worse than last season. And I was wrong. And there were a myriad of reasons for that. The, the, the squad just has not changed enough. And it has been very, very obvious since the competitive game started that they do not have the personnel to execute the new manager's uh, approach, uh, that they're not aligned with his style. But the manager is is complicit in that. You just look at the goalkeeping situation. Objectively, when Ten Hag came in, he had to make the choice as to which goalkeeper would suit his style of play better. And it's not a debate. It's Dean Henderson. But we all knew that Dean Henderson was going to go on loan and David De Gea was going to be United's number one keeper because De Gea did have a good season last season. Yet you almost had to just draw a line under last season, which is what the people at the club were saying. They wanted to draw a line under it. And you've got a new man coming in who's objective, no ties to the club whatsoever. And the way they've gone about the decision-making has, has just not been good enough. And to, to be honest, I don't think Ten Hag's picked enough battles. He's not picked enough fights. He's, he, he, I mean, he has picked a fight with the whole squad now in hauling them in for training on Sunday. But going back to the game on Saturday, as soon as that first goal went in, 
you might as well stop the game there because United, the way they are these days, the lack of resilience in the team, the body language, um, they are are completely drained of any belief. The only player who was was trying to rally the team um, at 2-0 down was the player who wants out, which is Ronaldo. And when the third goal went in, he stopped doing that because United were well and truly beaten by that point. But they were well and truly beaten by the time that the first goal went in. There's just no resilience about them whatsoever. The body language of the players was eerily similar to the end of last season. Here we are at the start of this season. Not enough has changed. Um, but as I said, when you're trying, when you sign Christian Eriksen, you play him firstly as a, a centre forward in inverted commas, and then you play him as the sole holding midfielder or a defensive midfielder. You are asking for trouble. He's an attacking midfielder. He's a playmaker. He can play from deep. He can play on the wing. The two positions Ten Hag starts him in, nobody would ever play him there. And when Ten Hag says, well, Christian played there when he was in the Ajax youth team, nobody cares. And that's another problem. Ten Hag is managing like he's still at Ajax. At Ajax, he was used to, um, you know, trumping up, uh, trumpeting Premier League rejects as though they were that they were coups or something like that because that was how far down the food chain Ajax were. Nobody at United has the backbone to tell him that the Eredivisie and the standard is just, compared to the Premier League, they are poles apart. United wanted to send Ahmad Diallo out there on loan to Feyenoord last year. When that collapsed, he ended up in Scotland a few months later and he couldn't hack it with Rangers. That That is the standard you're talking of when you talk about the Eredivisie. And yet United have just stood by as they've allowed Ten Hag to sign a five foot nine centre back from uh, from Ajax, who predictably was gobbled up by Brentford. If you're an analyst for another club, it's not difficult to, to tell the players what to do when you come up against United. It is press them in the final third as intensely as possible because they can't cope. And if Martinez is playing, we will almost certainly have a forward who's taller than him. So target him aerially as much as you can. And, and Martinez looked unnerved from, from the start at, at Brentford. He, he couldn't get rid of the ball quickly enough. And it is still too early to completely judge him. I mean, Nemanja Vidic had a dreadful start to his United career. Most newly signed centre-backs struggle at the start of their United career because it's such an unforgiving position to play in and you are prone to making mistakes. But when you're signing someone whose profile just does not fit in with the way that the, the elite Premier League centre-backs operate or your prototype of an elite Premier League centre-back, you're likely to be on a hiding. But one is entitled to cut Martin as much more slack than some of the other um, wastrels, frankly, in that squad. I mean, Luke Shaw for the fourth goal somehow ended up further away from Mbwemo at the point when he hit the ball past De Gea than when he was actually trying to catch up with him, which was a pitiful attempt. Maguire does not retain the support or enough support from the supporters or the players to retain the captaincy. Um, The the midfield, there's just a massive void there. It's, It's unforgivable that they've not signed a central midfielder yet this summer. It's absolutely crazy. And as far as that attack goes... Ten Hag is constrained by what he can do in terms of changes. As you said, there was only one change and I wasn't surprised by that, really. I thought there might have been two changes at an absolute maximum. And that is because they do not have the quality um, in, in depth in the squad. So 
Marcus Rashford, Jane Sancho, the flaky forwards, they keep their place. Bruno Fernandes played even worse since he got a salary hike in April. He keeps his place. And it's just a, it's a complacent culture at United. Um, it's it's still too compliant as well. As I said, I don't think Ten Hag has picked enough fights or enough battles to try and make that team his own. And here we are what, just over two weeks ago until the transfer window. They've suffered what long-time fans consider to be their worst result performance since the 5-0 at Crystal Palace in, in 1972. That's how bad it's getting. And when they lost that game, it wasn't until the next season that they were relegated. So any notion that things are going to get better anytime soon, you'd have to be the an ultra-optimist to be of that opinion right now because Liverpool's on the horizon. And that was a game that was looming ominously well before the Brentford game came along. Definitely. And Ty, to bring you in on this, obviously, I think the most you know, kind of prominent factor about that game on Saturday was the fact that it didn't really come as that big of a shock to a lot of people. A lot of people thought it was possible. And Samuel's mentioned there, obviously, the culture's all wrong at the club and that all extends from the very top. But do you not think in what we've seen, albeit only two games in, that Ten Hag is kind of making a maybe a bit of a rod for his own back with some of his choices? But at the same time, he's not got a lot of other choices, Samuel says, with the options he's been able to bring in. No, he hasn't. He's clearly been let down in the transfer market. It's been a, it's been an absolutely disastrous window. We said it on Friday, and it's it's worth saying again that the five clubs that finished above United have, have got a better squad than they had last year, and United have got a worse squad. So it's absolutely no surprise that that this has happened. But I don't looking at it objectively, Ten Hag can't escape criticism for that. I don't think. Obviously, with the caveat that it's still very early for him in the Premier League, that he he can change his approach. But what he picked on Saturday was effectively an Ajax team to play go-ahead Eagles or Excelsior and have 75-80% possession and, and dominate the game. And that's just not going to happen. Um, when we were on the, the journey down, talk about the team, we can, this isn't being wise after the event, but I, I said I wouldn't have Ericsson in the midfield. I'd stick with Fred McTominay. He did, on he did say that. He did say that. Because um, they haven't, they, they've not got the structure at the moment to play the way Ten Hag wants them to and the players to play the way Ten Hag wants them to. I feared for them if Ericsson played. And then when I saw Ericsson playing as a defensive midfielder, I thought it would be disastrous, and it was. I mean, the easiest way of looking at it is would Klopp, Guardiola, Tuchel, Conte or Arteta play Christian Ericsson as a defensive midfielder in the Premier League? And the obvious answer is no, not a chance. And it was just a... You know, it was a really, it, it, like, like I say, it was a team picked to have 75-80% possession where everyone knows their jobs and you're camped in the opposition's half. But there's almost no Premier League games like that unless you get to the level of Manchester City, which we've seen how many millions that took. And it even took Guardiola a season to, to get it right. So there's no way it's going to be right for Ten Hag after two games when he's inherited what's essentially a poor squad. So I think there's... There's certainly a concern with that. And as Samuel pointed out during the game, I think even if you put De Jong in that position, he'd still get, he'd still be targeted by an aggressive press. And Ericsson was was clearly targeted. And to, you know, to cut Ericsson some slack, I'm not sure he's played that position in his life, to be honest. He's not used to receiving the ball to feet 20 yards from his own goal with his with his back to goal, trying to trying to lay passes off. I don't think that's his game, and I don't think it's ever been his game. And it it did feel like a, a risky selection. Well, like I said, there's, there's time for Ten Hag to learn from it. Um, but he hasn't, you know, he, he hasn't helped himself. We've spoken all summer about this transfer strategy feels like a risk. And, and Samuel's right. It's very early for Martinez. It takes centre-halves a while to, to develop and learn in the Premier League. But he's, 
physical stature is is clearly a concern. I was on holiday for the game last week and when the teams come out and the game started on Saturday, I, I turned to Samuel and said I couldn't actually believe how small he was. He looks smaller in real life than you imagine five foot nine to be. And, and, it, and this th- this has happened. The three games I've seen Martinez away went with Stephen for the Barakana game. We both said Martinez is tiny. Um the second game Laurie was sat behind me and Rich was sat next to me and they both said Martinez is tiny. And then, of course, at the weekend, Ty sat next to me watching Martinez for the first time and he says Martinez is tiny. So yeah. it's easy to see what who Brentford were going to target. Yeah, and it's you know it's it, it's a question of where he goes from here now because he's basically been been approaching being bullied by Danny Welbeck and Ivan Tony now. The next game is, is Liverpool. If they start Darwin Nunes, who I think six foot two, it's you know it's a pretty frightening prospect, and there's Samuel's right that, that Luke Shaw had a terrible game, and United improved down that flank when Malassia came on. But as a left side of your defence, could you play five foot nine Martinez and five foot seven Malassia? I think that would then become an even bigger, especially for teams. I mean, Liverpool and, and City are going to play the same way, but teams of a level of Brentford and Brighton would see that lineup and just think get a centre forward and a right winger or your right back, any six foot plus players overload the back post. And there's, there's clearly problems there for United. So it is, you know, Martinez has got time, but his physical stature works against him. And it's clear that he's being targeted. I was in the mix zone afterwards and Brentford, several Brentford players stopped. And I could all, all of them basically said the game plan was to press and target certain players of which Ericsson was clearly one once they saw he was playing as the holder and get it long to Martinez. That's happened both games now. Ten Hag said last week that he was surprised Brighton played long ball when they're a passing team, but I think they played long ball because teams can see that it's a way to get it United by by targeting Martinez. So there are some some structural issues there that that need changing. And I'm sure, you know, Ten Hag's an elite coach, I've no doubt of that. He needs to change his tactical approach at this stage, I think, and and he's got plenty of time to do that. And I'm sure he can do that. But at the moment, you know, he's I don't think he's helped the situation in the first two games, let's put it that way. Mm, definitely. And I suppose it now begs the question is, obviously, United have got to think about what they want for the long term. Martinez and Maguire have started as the favourite centre-back parent at the start of this season. But obviously, given Martinez was exposed so quickly on, on Saturday, Samuel, do you think there'll be a temptation from Eric Ten Hag to bring Raphael Varane back into the fold next Monday night? But of course, you've got to factor in that. You've got to give him Martinez time to settle. And you've also got to try and build up a back line that you want to, you know, to have some consistency to. So, do you think he's got to got to twist it and make that change so early on, or do you think it's important at the same time to give it that little bit of time just to bed in and blood it all together? He has to. They're they're coming up against one of the best teams in the world, and one of the most ruthless teams in the world who put nine goals past United last season with with no reply. You, you've got to do what you can to. To, to avoid defeat, that's that's how defeatist it is at United at the moment and how how far off they are from, from Liverpool. Go, going back to the Vidic comparison, he he really got going at United. He, he signed in January, had a reasonable end to the, the 05-06 season, but he truly got going, I think, about September or October time when he, he cemented his place in the team next to Rio Ferdinand and he'd had an injury in the summer that meant he missed the World Cup. So that, that took a a long, long time for him to get there. I think the other issue Martinez has or United have is that Ten Hag has gone out on a limb to say that his first choice partnership is is Maguire-Martinez. 
when when he told us that in Melbourne, I think it was, all of us there when we were discussing it afterwards, I don't think any of us thought that was that was correct. Objectively, from an opinion, our opinion, almost collectively, was that that's a risk. That they want to play a high line. You, you you're going to leave yourself vulnerable because neither Martinez or Maguire are particularly quick, and and Martinez is is tiny. There's, I, I'm you you might know George if you do you know fantastic but I, i'm struggling to think of the last center back in the premier league under six foot who played so so regularly and won a winner's medal it's it's very very difficult to to think of if that player i mean I, i'm not sure if steve bruce was, was six foot maybe but you're going back going back a hell of a long time there and whatever however poor a first season Varane had at united he is still the best center back in that squad i'm nobody can credibly debate or claim that Harry Maguire is a better centre-back than Rafael Varane. They're, they're identical ages as well. I think they're both 29. J- just look at Varane's career. Um, OK, the last year has been a disaster, but you've got to p- play your best players. And Ten Hag has arguably been guilty of that in both games. He didn't start Ronaldo against Brighton, and he's not started Varane in, in either of the two games. And, and look what's happened. And United's just so porous. And it's not just down to, to the centre-halves. I mean, the goalkeeping issue is something that I fear for United's, for United's sake, that's going to become a recurring theme of the season. But Luke Shaw as well should not have been starting the season. I know Terrell Malassia, you you, know, you can't... It, it would be... It, would, it is a risk to judge a player just on pre-season, but essentially what Ten Hag was doing, which I thought was quite a sound method, was that he was trying to maintain continuity in pre-season with his selections, gearing up for the first first game of the season. And sure, started the majority of those games, but the most fulfilling half or, or game United had in pre-season was against Atletico. And Malassia starts in that game. And the way Shaw performed last season as well, he, he was extremely fortunate to start the season he was extremely fortunate again to start against Brentford, and he was one of the three who were hooked at half time. But again, there's no guarantee Malassia will be will be a quality left back for United. Uh, I know he's small. I don't think that necessarily matters as much as if you're a centre back. And th- there's clearly some raw potential there, and he's still quite young. But you would be throwing him in at the deep end against Liverpool, um, against Mohamed Salah, uh, you know, and, and Liverpool interchange, no problem whatsoever. So if it's not Salah, it might be Luis Diaz or it might be Diogo Jota running at you. It's a hell of a baptism of fire, but he deserves it more than sure. You, you cannot you cannot get away with making just one or two changes after that that performance at the weekend. I mean, we'll get on to James Garner shortly, I'm, I'm sure, but I'd, I'd start Garner ahead of certain midfielders just because... What, the way it's going, it, it can't get any worse, and he's untried. So, so why not? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Something's got to give, hasn't it? And Ty, just to kind of wrap up the whole Brentford debacle for me before moving on to James Garner and other other topics on the agenda. Obviously, United now they've got into this rut that's lasted since the end of last season, and I'm struggling to actually think of the last time they actually played well, certainly away from home. Considering, obviously, as Samuel said, it's Liverpool up next. It's the prospect of Salah, Darwin Nunes, Yotta, Firmino running at them. United fans must already be questioning the big question, how many are they going to get? It's, it's really concerning, isn't it? And it, Do you almost feel that Ten Hag in that game, he's got to literally just almost park the bus just to keep the score down? It's that bad at the moment? 
Um, yeah, that, I mean, if he plays Christian Eriksen at defensive midfield again, <laughs> I think there'll be, be major <laughs> problems. Um, I don't think that'll be happening against Liverpool. Um, yeah, certainly looking at it at the moment, it, it certainly looks like how many. Um, you know, things can change quickly. He's got a long time to come up with a game plan. The mind goes back to the, I mean, the Liverpool game for Solskjaer last year was clearly a disaster when they lost 5-0. The year before, I think it was, they went into it when Liverpool might have won their first eight or nine in the league. United were struggling and, and Solskjaer came up with a good game plan and got a 1-1 draw. So, you know, it's one of those fixtures where it's not impossible for United to, to turn it around, to find something. If the players react positively to, to Ten Hag's methods this week, and it's pretty clear what his methods are after after yesterday... That, you know, that certainly feels like it's it's very early to to sort of be going in with those methods. But if the players respond to it and react to it, you know, it, it's not inconceivable that they they improve and, and they get something going. But, you know, at the moment, it, it looks hard to see. And the, the biggest problem, as Samuel mentioned before, is is confidence. And, you know, I, I spoke to De Gea after the game, who, to his credit, actually asked to speak to, to the broadcasters and to, to the Manchester journalists who travelled. And, he, you know, he, I asked him about confidence and he said, when things go wrong, we just start panicking. When something goes against us, we just start panicking. And you can see that. And going back the last four games now, they conceded three and 11 minutes of Brighton last end of last season, two in nine minutes last week, four in 25 minutes on Saturday. Um, and it's, it is that one brings two. And especially if, it, if the first goal is a mistake or something that goes wrong, you can just see that heads are dropping and, Confidence is clearly a massive, massive issue. And that that's the only way that can be fixed is by winning games. And if they can stay in the game and start well against Liverpool, maybe they've got a chance of, of making it competitive. But you do also feel if they go 1-0 down early, like they did last season, it, it could get away from them because heads will drop and, and they probably will just think, here we go again, because they've had so many, so many blows, a lot of them self-inflicted, but so many blows over the last sort of 10 to 12 months now that it, it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy for them, basically. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's going to be an interesting one. And Samuel, just to touch on the other end of the pitch, obviously, been a lot of focus on the goalkeepers and Martinez and Maguire and Shaw. Obviously, United yet to score this season via a player of their own. Obviously, the goal against Brighton was an own goal. We saw in pre-season, obviously, Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford were looking sprightly. They looked positive. They were kind of buying into what Eric Ten Hag wanted. They've been completely gone missing in these opening two games. And with less than 100 days to go now till the till the World Cup starts. Obviously, they were left out of the last England squad. They're already, you know, chasing lost time, aren't they? They've, they've not got off to the start that Gareth Southgate needed for them. Or United, for United's sake. The, yeah. um, unfortunately, this is one of the big issues Ten Hag has got. But the proven forwards, proven is maybe pushing it, but established or known forwards that he has, they are all flaky. Uh, apart from Ronaldo, if you were to take him out of the equation, I mean, the most significant thing that happened to Martial in pre-season was that he got injured. It wasn't the three goals on tour. And Rashford got five goals last season. Sancho had maybe two good months in the entirety of last season. It still remains to be seen whether he's got the mentality to really handle the, the scrutiny and the pressure that comes with playing for Man United after what four years with, with Borussia Dortmund, where let's face it, you are not under pressure. The, you know every season, you're not going to win the league. You will do very well to get to the to get to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. A good season is winning the German Cup. That, that's not pressure. 
and United is the most it's it's the most scrutinized sporting institution on the planet. I don't think there's a debate about that. I think when people talk about the biggest club in the world, I've said this before, Real Madrid are the biggest football club in the world because of the 14 European Cups they've got, because of uh, what Di Stefano and Pushkas did at Hamden Park in the 70s and the, the Galacticos, they attract the club. And they are still the club that every elite professional footballer wants to play for. But in terms of the following, the sheer scrutiny and the fascination, United is on a different level altogether. And I think that that is an issue with Sancho. And, and Rangnick said as much in January where he, he was having to adapt from going to somewhere where he wasn't in a pressure cooker environment and where he's now at the moment. It's, it's as intense as the heat in London on Saturday. In Rashford's case, I just think he, at the moment, and it's been for a while as well with United, he just looks absolutely shot. And you do wonder whether a change of scenery is in his best interests and the club's best interests. The only loser from that PSG meeting that he that his agent and brother, Dwayne Maynard, attended last week was Dwayne Maynard, because PSG know that they're being used um, by in an attempt by, by Rashford and Rashford's brother to get a new contract. Rashford has been telling people at United that his preference is to stay, which deep down I, I still think it is because he's got that emotional attachment uh, with them, with the club, with the area. He's he's obviously born, bred in Withenshaw. He's, he's a Mancunian. He's come through the academy. Um, the, the start he had to his career was extraordinary, but he has been out of form for at least 18 months now. And with the contract situation, as is the case with the other players who are out of contract next year, but with plus one options, you would not be given a new contract to any of them. But in Rashford's case, you absolutely cannot let him go on a free. So in some ways, it might make more sense to, to try and cash in this summer than next summer, because would there be as intense a market to sign him next summer? But United cannot be letting a forward go at the moment when they're struggling to bring a forward in, whether it's Marco Arnautovic or Benjamin Sesko. I mean, you could hardly get two more different profiles of, forwards or striker, one's 33, one's 19. Um, United need Rashford at the moment, even though he's still underperforming. And whenever he gets the ball, he just does not have that uh, that that imperiousness about him that he had maybe in the 2019-20 season when he got going from October to picking up the, the, the back injury in December. But he still played on into January and he was still scoring goals then. And he, he was the talisman of the team at that point. But that that feels like a distant memory now. That's going back three seasons. And it's you're beyond Marshall, Rashford and, and Sancho. Anthony Alanga not scored since February. Uh, Ahmad and Facundo Palestri, I don't think they really count as uh, in terms of Ten Hag's plans. Clearly, Palestri is not going to go on loan because of his ankle injury. Ahmad still might. Garnacho is very raw. And the one reliable goal scorer, the one who didn't score on, on Saturday, but was was getting some pretty good chances, which he should have taken, is, is Ronaldo. And he wants out. And he still might get, get out before the transfer deadline. As I've said before, George Mendes is the one agent who can make the impossible possible. But it's, it's such a dire situation to be in with just over two weeks to go until the transfer window closes because that, that's the state of that attack at the moment. It needs two forwards. There were four attack-minded players who left at the end of their contracts in the summer. 
And okay, Christian Eriksen's come in, so you'd say he's probably replaced Juan Mata, but there's no creative midfielder in that squad, really. Um, you know, Cavani went, no strikers come in. Lingard is, is an attack minded midfielder, nobody's come in for him. It's it's an extraordinary situation United are in. But if ever, if anything can go wrong at a club and will go wrong, it's Man United to the point that their their new garish kit clashes with the pitch. And you, know, <laughs> it, it, you couldn't write these things sometimes, but they they write. I, I said to a fan last week, I, I felt at times as though I've been writing for the, the football version of Private Eye in the last seven or eight days. And <laughs> Um, I, th- I think that's that's going to continue this week as well. Dressed, yeah, dressed in lime and playing like lemons on Saturday, weren't they, I think? Yes, very, yeah, good. That's, very good. That's a good shout, that time. Anyway, moving on from on-field debacles and problems to the transfer market. Samuel, you've done a story this morning that's gone live. James Garner, United are prepared to let him go before the window closes on a permanent deal opposed to a loan. I personally, really, really surprised by it. I can't understand the thinking behind it. What do you make to it, considering United have started the season so poorly and their midfield is absolutely shot to pieces? So I completely agree with you, but to try and make summarise it as succinctly as possible, James Garner is sellable because he wasn't at Manchester United last season. There is not a market for Manchester United duds because they're on high wages, they're on long contracts. Nobody wants to sign them permanently. Certain clubs will balk at the prospects of covering all of their wages as, as part of a loan arrangement because James Garner is 21, spent last season on loan at Nottingham Forest and clearly has a skill set that could where people could see him thriving in the Premier League. He's sellable. Most tellingly, United want between 15 and 20 million pounds for him, which of course would cover the cost of signing Adrian Rabiot. And this is a way, we've seen this before uh, on deadline day a couple of years ago, uh, Smalling went out Teles came in and the fees were identical. I think it was 15 million euros up front, rising to 20 million euros. And when that happens, everyone knows what's going on there. But clearly, they are having to, to sell to buy in that case. And it is it's quite sad for James Garner, who's an untried academy graduate, um, who's, who's the one they've, they've decided to, to try and get rid of because he's, he's the most sellable. It's not Donny van der Beek who's got up to four years left in his contract and hasn't started a meaningful league game for United since December 2020. And he was, he was hauled off at half-time in that one. It's not McTominay, who's still on a pretty decent contract, who's 25 and has a ceiling, is, is a squad player at best for United. And Fred is 29. He's, he's entered effectively the last two years of his contract where there's not going to be a market to sign him. Um, permanently, especially given how, how how regularly he's playing for United as well. So Garner is a victim of his own success. And the only pity for him is that he was injured for the pre-season tour. You, you, well, the vast majority of it, you wondered whether that would have a bearing on, on the forthcoming season for him. And unfortunately it has. And th- there's a bit more detail that will come out on, on that, but, but in a, in a couple of weeks time, um, that again doesn't reflect well on United. So yeah, I, I think as you've seen and as you've summarised very well there, George, you know, the, the, the supporters really aren't happy about that, and understandably so because there's an absolute void in midfield, and Garner remains uh, an untried potential solution. 
Definitely. And Ty, just to bring you in on this, obviously, as Samuel said, obviously, the caveat is he is United's most sellable asset from those pool of midfield players at the moment. But do you think there's almost a, a look at it from United thinking he's only played in the Championship, perhaps he's not ready for this yet? But considering how poorly United's midfield has performed, albeit after two games so far, and that Garner flourished against Arsenal, Leicester and Liverpool in the FA Cup when at Forest last season, mm. surely he would have been worth a crack and given a go in these opening two games. You would certainly think so, yeah. I think he, he 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 could do a job in that midfield for sure, and I think it it would be interesting to see him. Um, Sam was right about pre-season. It feels like he he was really unfortunate to get injured on what was basically the first day of that tour. I think, and that that clearly scuppered his chances. He's had a chance now. I mean, Ten Hag has clearly had a good look at him and decided, for whatever reason, he doesn't think he's he's up to it in the squad. Obviously, Van der Beek's come on before him, um, and United. He is, you know, he's 21 now, so there's the argument you send him on loan again, but you're kind of at that point where it's probably make or break in terms of being good enough to play and good enough to be in the squad, and you can get decent money for him, should get 15 to 20 million for him, you would think. And the, you know, the caveat is that that, that has to be invested in this squad. We, I think we spoke on Friday about the issue with what is essentially a pretty small budget for, for a top six team these days. All of it needs to be reinvested. Um, they're nowhere near spending that budget at the moment. They've obviously got 70-odd million earmarked for De Jong. I think that 70-odd million is going to end up back in their bank accounts, isn't it? Um, and they've now got, you know, they should bring in 15 million for Ghana. So there's money to spend there in the final couple of weeks of the window that, that needs to be spent well. And I think if, if Ghana is sold and that money is reinvested on a quality forward or on a couple of quality midfielders, then the, the fans could understand it. If he's sold... And we end up with Rabio and some journeyman striker coming in to add a bit of competition. Then you'll certainly be questioning the wisdom of it. Then, yeah, you certainly will. And speaking of players having gone out on loan and things like that, Samuel, our colleague Rich has reported this morning that Harnibal Mejbri looks like he's going to go to Birmingham on loan for the season. I think we can all agree that that's probably the, the correct step for his development to bring the best out of him this season, isn't it? It is, whether it's the right move going to Birmingham City. I mean, Tahith Chong had a pretty good time there last season, but Tahith Chong is is not seen as a, a future asset at Manchester United. I mean, it's it was remarkable that the, the minutes he played in, in pre-season. Uh, you know, we, we've made the joke a number of times, oh, he must have played as often as he did because he's Dutch and Ten Hag clearly has a... Um, a predilection with with Dutch players or players from Holland, but whether playing under John Eustace at Birmingham is is the way forward for Mejbri remains to be seen. I mean, Birmingham with with Eustace now there, it's a different manager compared with when Chong was there because it was Lee Bowyer who was in charge. So whether that's the right move, that's up for debate. You know, it's it's difficult to weigh up whether that that's the right club for Mejbri to be. To be joining, I can understand why United would want to get him to a Championship club because I think it is a good, it's a good environment for for academy players' development. Um, sometimes it it changes. I mean, with as I said earlier, with with Ahmad last year because he didn't come through the academy and he'd come from from Atalanta, they wanted him to go to to Feyenoord in the Eredivisie, which I think would have been a good move in that you're it's it's a more technical league. You're you're developing your technique as as a footballer and as a forward at a big club where you, they they might have been competing for the Dutch title. They didn't win it, obviously, but it, that that would have been a much more um, 
a move that would have been more suited suitable for him. But unfortunately, then obviously he got injured, and so the Rangers was the compromise in January. And what what's really the value of sending someone to to Scotland? Uh, being frank, I mean the Scottish Premiership in in recent years has become a graveyard for. United Academy rejects or Academy players who just aren't good enough, whether it's Dimitri Mitchell or, or James Wilson. So um, th- that loan obviously did did not go well. For Mesbury's sake, hopefully his, his loan spell does go well, um, provided obviously it, it ends up going through. But Rich has been very on the ball with that this summer. So some sometimes things can change. Obviously, Ethan Laird was going to go to Watford, but then that, that collapsed at the last minute and he's ended up at Queen's Park Rangers. But it seems like... Um, Birmingham is, is is where Meshbury is destined to go. Yeah, fingers crossed for him, and also fingers crossed as Samuel said for Ethan Laird as well. He's joined QPR this morning, Ty, and I remember we discussed this probably about a couple of weeks ago, saying that a full season of playing somewhere week in week out is the best thing for him. And I think at QPR, obviously a new re- regime with Mick Beale, their new manager, who's taken a liking to young players, it it seems like quite a, a sensible move that United have done with that one. Yeah, it, it does. And like you say, I think the manager is is probably crucial in that and that he's a, a progressive manager, the manager who's used to working with with young players. I think his background is until I think Gerard took him to Rangers maybe until then his background was almost exclusively with with young players. Um so he's clearly someone who's got a lot of faith and a lot of trust in in youth. And you'd think Laird will get a, a full season there. I think we talked on the last podcast we mentioned this about how he's Probably moving from Swansea to Bournemouth midway through last year didn't work out for him. He didn't play a lot at Bournemouth. He clearly had struggles there. That can help with your your development, but it feels like you know he, he's twenty one now, like Garner. He needs a good season if he's to have a chance of of making it at United. And it it might even be the case that he has a good season and, and becomes a, a sellable asset. Um, and if that's the case, that's you know that's not a bad thing. If you look at how Man City make money from their academy. And even Liverpool selling Nico Williams for some astronomical fee to, to Nottingham Forest. That's something that the top two do do very well. We seem to be saying that every week, but they they do that well. And there is there's an attraction when you do when you're a good club to having your academy graduates on the books. And if Laird if Laird does the same as Garner and has a good season in the championship, even if he's deemed not good enough for United, if he becomes a player they can shift on for ten million pounds or something like that, then it's still job done for the academy, really. Yeah, I would certainly consider that a win-win. So, yeah, I think that's just about to wrap this one up for this week and certainly an event for one with the Brentford fallout. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you leave a like and subscribe if you haven't already and make sure you continue to check out the Manchester United News website for all the very latest of the Brentford fallout, the latest transfer news and looking ahead to next Monday night's big clash with Liverpool. But until later this week, we'll catch you again and uh, take care and see you soon. 